Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the new host of The Apprentice. I forgot what happened to the old guy, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Ellen Shell, a correspondent for Atlantic Monthly. Her latest book is all about one of my favorite topics, the future of work. It's called The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. Ellen, welcome to Recode Decode. It's great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, one of the, I'm so excited to talk about this. But first, I want to go into your history because you've written a couple of books that really rivet and fascinate me. So talk a little bit of how you got to this because you were a science writer. Is that right? Is that incorrect or you've written about lots yeah, of different topics? I've written my, my background technically way, way back when is in science and mm-hmm. biology and um, um, I've written a lot on science, but I try to bring uh, the kind of rigor mm-hmm. that we bring to covering science into right. other areas. And in recent, oh, at least last decade, I've been focused on issues of economics, mm-hmm. um, which I think are very, very compelling, especially now. Right, exactly. So talk about your background. Go through. I like where people come from because I think our readers like to know how they made it to where they got Oh, well, going way back when, uh, as I said, I was trained in biology, always had a great interest in public communications, uh, also in film. I started off as a film critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people know that. Oh, wow. Um, you write for? Very, very long ago, uh, Seattle, oh, the wow. Seattle Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then moved on to longer form and... Uh, as you mentioned, uh, had a long affiliation with The Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, magazine in Boston. Um, and uh, now I'm a professor at Boston University, have been for quite some time. I direct the graduate program in science journalism mm-hmm. and as well so uh, write books. So you continue to write about science, right? I do, now right. and again. Right. Yes. So what is the what is the professor of science journalism do now? Just in the journalism department, is people who are getting into that as a career. Well, my students are all graduate students, and mm-hmm. they have most of them have at least an undergraduate degree in a science, mm-hmm. and they're interested in talking to the general public about issues in science, and a big part of their job is analysis. Mm-hmm. So it's not just reporting on science. It's kind of... Um, unpacking science and explaining it, talking about its significance and its relevance mm-hmm. to a general audience. Right. Okay. So one of your first books was about, we talked about it just earlier, it was about uh, the science around obesity and about fat and thin, essentially, correct? Right, right. So I did write a book, uh, what's my first book, my second book on, um, uh, it was called The Hungry Gene. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was very interested in the time in, you know, that was the early 2000s. And I was really interested in the biological basis of behavior. 
I had some questions about whether that notion that biology could direct our behavior was was being exaggerated. But then looking at it carefully, I found, well, eating behavior is something that is to a certain degree biologically directed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the hungry gene is about the discovery of the OB gene in mice Mm -hmm. and uh, later in humans. And people who lack that gene are uncontrollably hungry Mm -hmm. all the time. Now, Mm -hmm. there are very, very few people globally like that, but there is a constellation of genes that are involved in this Mm -hmm. process, and some of your genetic background does determine how much you eat in a given environment. So that was very interesting to me. Yeah, but then you moved on to cheap. So talk about that, that, because you were very early this idea of what discounting does. You don't know this, but I wrote a lot about Herbert Haft, who did the—do you remember him? He was the one who did—he did had a discount drugstore, and it was a Supreme Court decision that allowed people to discount yes. prices. Yes, yes. Uh, and so I know a lot about discounting. You do? But, yeah, okay, but, but, great. But, but, shockingly. Um, but <laughs> but one of, I had to learn. Um, you were sort of early this idea of what happens in this era where prices become. And one of the questions—I had Janet Yellen on stage at, uh, at an event yesterday, and we were talking about whether— the presence of algorithms and say Amazon has created a situation where prices are always the right price, yeah, right? Yeah. So talk a little the bit about cheap. Perfect price, yeah. the so-called perfect price. Right. Yeah, well, cheap was an interesting uh, journey for me because I did learn about the history of discounting and um, how it all got started, you know, the white sales in the late 1800s. What originally was a really good thing. I mean, it made uh, goods accessible to people who couldn't afford them and uh, it was meant in, you know, to be the best of possible things. It also, interestingly, kept people employed. So Whitaker, who was a department store guy, a famous one in Philadelphia at the time, would lose his employees, uh, would have to lay people off after the Christmas rush. Um, And he didn't like doing that Mm -hmm. because he was a really good guy. Mm -hmm. And so what he did is he invented the white sale to bring people back to the stores in January to buy white goods, you know, sheets, towels, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. so he could keep his people employed year round. So Mm -hmm. sales at the, you know, originally the so-called sale discount um, were a really good thing for employees and for workers. Mm -hmm. But that book came out in um, almost not quite nine, eight, nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, I was really interested in what economists call the externalities of of low price. You Mm -hmm. know, what are the consequences of having such low prices. And Mm -hmm. what I concluded, well, what I concluded was a lot of low prices, you know, come on the backs of workers. Right. Right? I mean, how do you get prices so low? Mm -hmm. What do you sacrifice? Mm -hmm. Cutting labor costs is often the easiest and quickest way to to lower prices. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in that and, and wrote a book about it. And, of course, that led me to, you know, my next book, which is about work per se, mm-hmm. you know, the job is right. really about work right. in the 21st century. And, and in that ensuing time, technology has had both an impact on price and also on work. Absolutely. So let's talk about the yeah. origins of this book, uh, yeah. The Job. Sure. As I said, I had written this book called Cheap, and the corollary was, well, what is it, you know, the, the notion of cheap goods, meaning mm-hmm. cheap labor, right? Right. So I got really interested in that. Um, now, as it turned out, it's a very complicated issue, a very mm-hmm. interesting issue, lots of history um, and politics involved. But you're right about technology because technology has changed everything very, very quickly, mm-hmm. right? So up in, in the 20th century, up till around 2000, technology increased 
the need for skills. So mm-hmm. people were all training up, mm-hmm. you know, madly trying to keep ahead of technology, right, right. you know, all that stuff. But what's interesting is, and I don't know how many people know this, but since two, around 2000, a little thereafter, mm-hmm. the demand for skills has actually declined. Mm-hmm. Human skills has actually declined. Right. Now, this doesn't mean we don't need highly skilled people. We certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the top ends, we definitely right. do. Right, and then there's, a, there's lots of jobs there. There are a good, good number job. of jobs, but mm-hmm. the, the jobs that are most rapidly growing in mm-hmm. number are jobs at the low end, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So that middle-level job, which requires right. skills, right. has really been hollowed out, mm-hmm. and technology is doing that very, very quickly, and we actually don't know where it's going at this point. So right. this was a very interesting, challenging Absolutely. puzzle to One of the things unravel. I always say, and I sometimes just say things just to cause people to start talking about them, like, that will, like the other day I was like, there will be no stores in 20 years. I was like, there just won't be stores. You won't have stores the way we look at them, or... You won't own a car. It'll be like owning a horse. I just try to, like, get the discussion going, which I think directionally is correct, is mostly directionally. And one of the things I say all the time is this concept of everything that can be digitized will be digitized. And I'm talking about work. So any job that you can imagine being digitized, whether it's manufacturing or any or lawyers or radiologists or something like that, talk a little bit about the mechanics of what's happened with technology included in that, that these, these are jobs that will be gone or... Change. Change. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's a really interesting question. Uh, and I think what you said is true. Anything that can be digitized will be if it can be done more cheaply mm-hmm. and better right. than that's, humans. Add that right? Quarter, right. So no question about it. It remains to be seen whether things like the law and medicine as a whole will be done better by digital technology. Certain parts. Certain parts of it, no question. You know, radiology already, mm-hmm. uh, document searches mm-hmm. in, in the legal area have mm-hmm. become, a lot of them have been outsourced or in, in, to some degree automated. So absolutely no question that that's the direction we're going. Uh, it's probably the direction we should go. You mm-hmm. can't really stop that. That notion that, you know, we're going to beat the machines is really kind of a lost battle. Yeah, so I know? always like, we don't turn butter anymore. We don't do, like, <laughs> exactly. we don't do a lot of things. We, we don't to. wash our clothes with rocks on a, in a river, right? Mm-hmm. So it's inevitable that this is the way we're going. Now, however, you mentioned stores. Mm-hmm. Good point. Mm-hmm. You know, are we not going to have brick-and-mortar stores anymore? Well, what has happened, again, is that hollowing out. So we have actually more boutique stores than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Boutiques are actually... Because they're interesting, experiential, right? Exactly. So, you know, interestingly, independent bookstores have seen something of a revival in recent years, right? They were really in rapid decline. Now they're they're sort of crawling back. It's also true of a lot of boutique stores. And discount stores are doing quite well. You know, these big discount stores Mm -hmm. and big box stores are are doing quite well. What's losing ground are the department stores that your parents and my parents and I also, Mm -hmm. you know, used to to go to. And Mm -hmm. those mid-level stores um, that offered some level of quality and some level of service, maybe not the fanciest stuff, but good, durable stuff, they're the ones that are really in trouble. Talk about the mechanics of it. Like, what happens? So you have jobs and they shift. And and later I want to get into the idea of whether, as you said, you said briefly here, maybe they just should, like Mm. coal mining. Mm. Probably robots Mm. should do that Mm. job. Good point. Probably. 
I like that one. It's probably not good for humans to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Even though politicians say, we're going to bring back the jobs. I'm like, why would we want to? Like, right. I, I get right. that that's their jobs, but yes. maybe we need to get them to do something yes. else. And I want to talk about where jobs are going, but talk mm-hmm. about the mechanics of the hollowing out of how that happens. Because you're right, there's the low-end jobs right. and, and the right. this sort of um, piecework. Piece it's piecework piece of this work. day. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. the high-end jobs. Right. Talk about right. the mechanics of the hollowing out of the middle. Well, the hollowing out, so we can think of it, you know, things like travel agents, right? Mm-hmm. Was a mid-skilled job, mm-hmm. uh, very for many people, very interesting job, mm-hmm. uh, a desirable job, but it's become automated, uh, largely automated. We go online, we book our own travel, and mm-hmm. there still are travel agents, but many, many fewer of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, as we all know, we can name just dozens of job categories or scores of job categories mm-hmm. where that has happened. Where automation, bookkeeping, for mm-hmm. example, um, many uh, functions in accounting, mm-hmm. um, all these things have been obviated by technology or almost obviated. Mm-hmm. Toll takers, uh, which actually was a very well-paying job uh, on the on the throughways and the highways, mm-hmm. that's being very rapidly automated. Mm-hmm. And these are jobs, no matter how we may think of them, that were actually jobs people, many people d- were very desirable and people, you know, really enjoyed them and made a good living at them. Mm-hmm. So that hollowing out, um, as I said, is actually not inevitable. Those particular jobs, yes, obviously mm-hmm. those jobs have been automated and we're not gonna, they're not going to come back. Mm-hmm. There's no real reason they should if a machine can do them better. Um, and cheaper. And cheaper, especially, absolutely. And machines are expensive, by the way, mm-hmm. so no employer is going to invest a machine and then think he's also going to have the same labor costs, mm-hmm. right? Right. So once you put out for a machine, you hope it's going to take away some mm-hmm. of the need, certainly for the higher-priced labor Right. Right. So ironically, I think it's really kind of interesting. I've talked to a lot of computer scientists Mm -hmm. about this. It's not necessarily the low-level routine jobs that they're most excited about automating. They're actually very excited about automating more Mm -hmm. high-level, complex jobs because those people cost more. Right. 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 So if you want your bang for your buck, you automate a high-level, expensive Mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, Give me an example of that. Well, uh, like we mentioned, Mm -hmm. radiology. Mm -hmm. Right, um, looking at uh, slides of you know cancer cells, right. things like that. It's not perfected yet by machine, um, and uh, radiologists have to supervise the machines. But we're getting closer and closer to diagnostics, to diagnostics, right. automated uh, diagnostics. I mean, we've all heard of Watson and IBM. Mm-hmm. There are other places working on this. So mm-hmm. it's something that's a really it's kind of the holy grail. Mm-hmm. Can we automate the high? You know, the fancy jobs. Right. Um, okay. And and actually, some of the lower level jobs, say, for example, flipping burgers in McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? There are f- burger flipping machines, and they've mm-hmm. been out there for some quite some time. Mm-hmm. But those are such that's such cheap labor. Mm-hmm. You know, c- buying the machines. It's not worth it, right? Right. right. We so, got some new ones in San Francisco, in case you're interested. Some burger flipping machines. Yes, there's new ones. There you go. There's new <laughs> okay, ones. They're so still at it. You know, when, they're going to the, they're going to get it. At absolutely, as the minimum wage right. gets pushed pushed upward, those burger flipping machines are going to look more and more attractive. So this is something we have to plan for. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not scared of it. Mm-hmm. I think we should stop being scared of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I argue, let's face reality mm-hmm. and deal with it, and right. plan for it, and right. get uh, technology under our control. All right. Well, you. I want to talk about how we do that because I think one of the things, I want to talk a little bit more about where it goes in the next 5, 10, and 20 years, but also why politicians especially and who is, or anyone else, who is responsible for that? Is it the tech people? Is it, is it citizens? Is it the politicians? Is it the educators? When we get back, we're here with Ellen Shell. She's a journalist. Her latest book is called The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with journalist Ellen Schell. She works for The Atlantic, but her latest book is called The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. I talk a lot about work, and I think a lot about how it's going to change. One of the things that I'd love to get your take on is radical change now. Is it very akin to farming to manufacturing? Where do you put it? Like, put it historically. Because there's been— sure. This has happened several times oh, absolutely. in human— uh, and and will yeah. happen— several times again. Right, right. Absolutely happened. And I think the uh, mistake we've had is looking at history and assuming it's going to repeat itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we've we've looked at history and said, yeah, well, you know, the, nobody makes buggy whips anymore. That's right. the cliche, This is a Silicon right? Valley thing I hear all the time. Mark Andreessen and I had a big argument. It's like farming to manufacturing. I'm like, is it? No. And then they don't care about the right. transition. But that's <laughs> right. another issue. Well, they haven't, They whether or not they care about it, they haven't thought a lot about it. No, okay. not one so, second. Because they don't want to take responsibility for mm-hmm. it. I understand, you mm-hmm. know, that's not their job. Right. Um, so it is quite different because mm-hmm. certainly in the manufacturing era, you know, um, what, what this happened. This is the transition. Industrial, exactly, right. industrial revolution. Physical work became automated, right? Mm-hmm. Physical work. Right. But the brain was still kind of a, a human thing. And we didn't we didn't have AI, mm-hmm. we didn't have uh, machine learning, we didn't have all those things that we have today, mm-hmm. and so our intelligence, what made us human, mm-hmm. wasn't the really co- cog- exactly right. the cognitive aspect was was not really under threat, right? Mm-hmm. So great, you know. So it was just the know? physical, the physicality. It was but mostly it, it, the physical. It brought in an era of change because women could, you know, lots of different people could Absolutely. work. Absolutely, of course, women have always worked. Yes, of course. Uh, no, I get that. But I mean, in terms yeah. of the higher paying jobs, right, so. right. So it, it did open access to all sorts of things that were available. But now that we can automate some cognition, mm-hmm. okay, and we can't, I don't want to exaggerate what we can do, but we're certainly on that trajectory, mm-hmm. uh, machines that can teach themselves. That's mm-hmm. a very exciting thing that's just happened in the last few years. You mm-hmm. know, machine learning, machine teaching itself without needing a human to teach it, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing stuff, right. right? So that changes everything because what is left for humans, and we have to think very carefully about that. Um, and you know, all of us have some ideas. Um, none of the ideas are very good yet. Yeah. But this is a new day and a new time, and it's time. The opportunities I, here. I, I want to get that to, to a minute, a, but a close I want to still drill down on the idea of sure. what how this compares to the the last one, which would have been the farming to manufacture. Correct? Is that industrial revolution? Industrial sure. revolution. Sure. Absolutely. What do you call this one, and what do you? How do you compare it? Because you can't compare it even if it's not repetitive. It's similar, but not the same, It's not the same. Um, Some people call it the second machine age. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of the digital age. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are all 
different kinds of names for it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are a little, mis- you know, not quite right. Right. But that's, you know, that's what people tend to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and moving from agriculture, you know, this is, again, extremely fast. Mm-hmm. So Compared to the move, the farming right. to manufacturing, which is slower than people. Well, fast and slow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, just over 100 years ago, most Americans were farmers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the vast majority of Americans were farmers, worked in agriculture in mm-hmm. some way, right? Right. So here's the interesting thing. Most people didn't have jobs. Mm-hmm. So this whole notion of having a job, mm-hmm. you know, is a relatively new thing. You didn't really want to have a job because that meant you worked for someone else. That means you were like a farm hand rather than a farmer who owned his own land or who owned her own land. Mm-hmm. Or you were a craftsman who owned his or her own business, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't really want to be to have a job. So it was more right? ent- entrepreneurial It culture. was more entrepreneurial. Right. What we, you know, we don't think of it as entrepreneurial because now we associate entrepreneurs with Silicon Valley and right. folks like that. But actually, there were many, many more entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. People who work for themselves or work for their family, mm-hmm. that was the most common form of work. So the machine age brought with it this notion of a job mm-hmm. and the sanctity and of a job. you're a cog. You're a cog. You're and a cog. But certainly since, you know, since we think of it in the machine age, you know, factory work, which, by the way, is very appealing to a lot of people because mm-hmm. people work for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I deal with that in several chapters mm-hmm. in the book we'll talk about, about the sco- psychology mm-hmm. of work, like why do people do different jobs and what what do they seek in a job? And mm-hmm. it's, it's different for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. But those kinds, so people work in factories often really relish the kinship they get in mm-hmm. a factory job and the mm-hmm. stability that they get in a factory job. They That's a priority for them. But the machine age brought with it, you know, a kind of, those kinds of challenges, those kinds of new things of showing up for work every day. And it also brought this whole notion of unemployment. Mm-hmm. So that could be taken away from you. Right. Okay. And that was devastating. Mm-hmm. And again, that's new. Before your job really couldn't be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you had a, you know, bad crops, right. you know, where, you right. know, things, and that wasn't good. Right. But the next year, you'd try again. Mm-hmm. So this is handing over the power of your work life to an employer mm-hmm. is actually a relatively new thing. Mm-hmm. So what is now happening? Is, is that a going back to entrepreneurial? Because one of the things I talk about a lot is that if we don't educate people to be entrepreneurial again, we are n- getting nowhere with this next stage. Because if you're not entrepreneurial, you are almost Im- unemployable. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there will be jobs yeah. where do this, go there, yeah. but there's fewer and fewer of them. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And when, I think we need to expand our idea both of what it means to work. I mm-hmm. mean, working is not just a job. Mm-hmm. A job is a subset mm-hmm. of work. And I agree with you that we need to expand our idea of what it means to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. because we've kind of perverted that idea. Mm-hmm. And made that idea just, you know, again, associated with tech a sort of, or biotech or certain mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But being an entrepreneur means doing things on your, of your own volition, mm-hmm. you know, starting something of your own or being or having a portfolio that you own, whereas your job might be part of it or your work right. might be part of it. Other aspects of your life might be part of it. But preparing for work in the 21st century, you're absolutely right. Being an entrepreneur in the broadest sense 
is pretty critical. Right. So talk about what that looks like, what the landscape looks like in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Well, no one can predict that, right? Mm -hmm. And again, computer scientists, you know, have all sorts of predictions. They go all over the map Mm -hmm. on where they think this is going to go. But pretty much, people pretty much feel over the next, say, three decades, things are going to change very quickly and and very radically, Mm -hmm. whether it's obviously autonomous cars, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, 10 million people in the United States make their living driving vehicles. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And then there's the residual. I always, when I'm talking about that, they're like, oh, the truck drivers, like the truck drivers. What about the car park people? What about the gasoline station? What about the mechanics? What about, like, it iterates. And I always do that with my kids when I see a, you know, like a pay phone, if you ever find one anymore. Essentially, <laughs> I did find one the other day. It was wow. sort of like, whoa, look at you. And I was like, there was someone who serviced this. There was someone who built it. There was someone who did this with it. There's someone who made, you know, like on, there was an operator on the end. There was a this. And they don't do this anymore. Nobody does that anymore, which was really interesting. Right. So it has an iterative characteristic to it. Absolutely. Right, so autonomous it, cars. It, it, iterative is actually absolutely mm-hmm. right. So in the book, I go to Moraine, Ohio, which, mm-hmm. which was where there was, you know, a large automobile plant and mm-hmm. The place was empty. It was a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And not only, you know, the the plant, which had thousands and thousands of workers, but all the, as you said, it's a domino effect. Mm-hmm. The people who made the seats, the people who sold the sandwiches, the right. people who were janitors, the mm-hmm. people. So that area was absolutely devastated mm-hmm. by the closing of those plants. And you're absolutely right. Now, how are we going to prepare for that, mm-hmm. right? We can't, instead of wringing our hands and complaining and, and saying, let's bring back the coal miners, right. which I was also in Kentucky, and I can tell you a lot of people who whose families worked in coal don't want to get near it. A lot of the young, the millennials, mm-hmm. the last thing they want to do is, is to do what their grandfather did, right? Right, right? So we don't necessarily want to go back there. We probably can't go back there. We probably shouldn't go back there. Mm-hmm. So how do we go forward understanding that that's just an unrealistic mm-hmm. um, and very naive and nostalgic, mm-hmm. you know, boring to me, boringly nostalgic yeah. Yeah. kind of whim, right. right? So where do we go from here? And that's, you know, again, I discussed that. Although nostalgic, but it does have a hold on it because it leads, that kind of not knowing leads to populism, leads to, it leads to all kinds of things. Oh, because yeah. I was also in Kentucky and they were yeah. like, we want to bring our coal mining jobs. I said, you don't, yeah. you're not going to have them. And right. they said, well, Donald Trump said, he would. I go, well, he's lying. It's not, you're not going to have them. Like, I, and they were, I had a huge argument with a whole bunch of coal people. I'm like, I don't care what you say. You're not having these jobs. I said, your bosses are going to hire the robots. And trust me, they'll hire them in two seconds to replace you. Two seconds. It won't even take them two seconds. It'll be like a millisecond because they don't care about you. And if you think they do, you're as, as completely stupid now. And it was a really fascinating discussion. It got a little difficult at one point. but And then they were like, well, what do we do? I'm like, I have no idea. Sorry, goodbye. <laughs> Is that what you I'm, said? No, I didn't know. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> okay. What do we do? Okay. Like, so do I have do? some thoughts on okay. that. And, All right. and one of the thoughts that I have is um, actually the New York Times has done a, a series of articles uh, which I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And that is, let's bring coding schools to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And their you know, governor, who is a staunch Republican, mm-hmm. um, is a big fan mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Silicon uh, Holler, mm-hmm, I know. Mm-hmm, Silicon Holler. And we have to think, okay, so we're going to train people up as coders in Kentucky, first of all, what does coding even mean? Mm-hmm. Most people who promote that sort of thing don't even know what they're talking about when mm-hmm. they talk about coding. It's mm-hmm. Coding is a huge, b- big generic right. term. Right. Okay. Coding goes on in Asia mm-hmm. and uh, in India in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah, it's cheaper. Uh, it's a 
much, much cheaper. And they're faster do we, and they're already doing it. Exactly. Do we really want to compete with people in India to mm-hmm. code? Do we want to spend money, public funds especially, or have people spend their own hard-earned dollars on learning to code um, when those opportunities can be easily outsourced? Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. So what we, when I was in Kentucky, I spent a good deal of time there um, roaming around in the, you know, the Appalachia and other parts, and, and there's a tremendous amount of stuff going on in Kentucky that's indigenous, that's local. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do people do there? Well, there is, there is farming, there are crafts, there is alternative energy, big, big movement in alternative energy, mm-hmm. things that are coming, that are growing out of Kentucky itself, out of the state, rather than imposing this sort of international, you know, function yeah. on the people of Kentucky. What's special about Kentucky? What's special about their heritage? How can they capitalize on mm-hmm. what they already have? Yeah. And they have a tremendous, tremendously rich history. Mm-hmm. There's just, I mean, I spent time with the mayor of Berea, um, Kentucky, who had talked to me about the incredible history they had in um, dance and the arts and, and all these things and how he was hoping to to bring this to bear on tourism and bringing people into the state at the same time developing, as I said, these alternative energy um, systems, uh, bringing broadband in so they could, you know, communicate this and sell that stuff mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's great. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. It's not everyone learning to become a coder. Right. It's looking at what do these each one of these areas have to offer and how can we build on their mm-hmm. strengths? Mm-hmm. How do we do that from a net? Like, who is responsible? If you have tech creating these jobs, and I want to get to uh, sort of the Uber-like jobs and things like that. Sure. And, and one of the things I'm going to be writing about soon is uh, something I've actually talked about with the new governor of California, Gavin Newsom, about a lot is how you change what employment is, like Ooh. the designation of it. Like, could a state do it? Because the government's certainly not doing it. The federal government isn't. From your perspective, who's responsible? Is it the government? Is it citizens? Is it the tech companies that have created these inventions that have created these problems? Or is it educators? Like, where does it begin to be solved? Okay. So I... I don't like to ascribe blame because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, oh, we're all, we're all you know, we're, we're, we're all culpable, right? And um, Not maybe, on everything. Okay, yeah, okay, I'll agree with you on that. <laughs> I didn't do Facebook and I didn't make any money from it, so I'm not going to take the blame. Okay, okay. Right? Neither should um, you. No, no, okay. I won't take, I won't take too much responsibility, but um, I am a fan of tech. Mm-hmm. You know, I use it yeah. and I'm not, again, not pushing back on it. Right. But I think, I don't think it's necessarily tech job to solve this problem, but nor should we cede it to them. Mm -hmm. We should not say, okay, you guys solve this. You can handle it. We won't Mm -hmm. think about it. One of the things that I felt was true on both political parties Mm -hmm. is they kept hammering away at this idea that people should educate themselves out of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it was up to us as individuals to solve this problem on an individual level. Which is very American. Which is very American. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that really got me going on this book was this idea that was put out there that average is not good enough. Mm -hmm. I thought, wait, you know, anybody who has a math background knows. You know, I mean, I'm talking average. Is exactly, <laughs> average is most people. Right, right. Right. So if average is not good enough, we as a people are done for. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Because right. we're average. You right. know, most right. people are average. So what are they talking about? And so there's this idea out there that you have to constantly retrain. You have to be frenetic and frantic and always be one step ahead of the other mm-hmm. guy, or he's going to beat you out. That's something I think is a very, very negative and very hopeless Mm -hmm. situation. And again, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I I told you I I teach 
you know, mm-hmm. I teach at Boston University. I teach 20-somethings, and they're, they're really literally getting depressed about this. Mm-hmm. You know, how can they always beat out their roommate and their friends and their cousins, right? Right, right. And for everything they try to do. So I think that's partly responsible. I've seen candidates on both sides of the aisle promulgate that idea, you know? Mm-hmm. You, what we're going to do is we're going to train people, and more people are going to go to college, and more people are going to learn, and more people are going to be, you know— I don't think that's a wise decision for one reason. Mm-hmm. It, more, the vast majority of jobs going forward as they as they project into the mid two thousands are not going to require a college degree. Right. The vast majority, like seventy five percent. So the idea that we're training more people up in this in mm-hmm. these arenas, right? You know, they're to what for more competition. Yeah. Um, not a good idea. Yeah. So people need to think. More creatively, right about right? about what they do. I was I was talking to my kids, and my son is a really good cook, and I said, "You should be a chef. That'll mm-hmm. not be replaced easily." Exactly, it's a creative job. I was exactly. thinking any creative job, and I told my other students, "I was like, be a plumber. That'll work out well for a long, <laughs> long time, and you'll make a lot of money." Well, I have to tell you okay. that computer scientists were trying to. There's mm-hmm. a guy, I, I think. I'm at, at Columbia, mm-hmm. who's actually working on digitizing chef dumb. Yeah, you know, it's but it's, they, it's, they, we'll get to that one. There's exactly, so many others in the way. Exactly. I, like, I think it's a, you know it's he like was outrunning the bear. Exactly. Like the chef will not be dead before the lawyer. You're right, and like, if he's you know if he's a great chef, and, right. and that's what no, he but enjoys. I literally was like the lawyer's going to get first, and then oh, I'll get to you. Well, yeah, it was I, interesting. I All right, we're talking to Ellen Shell. Her book is called "The Job, Work, and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change." We get back. I want to talk about where the jobs are in the future, and then also the gig economy and where that goes and what we have to do to make that into something that's more meaningful for people and also more livable. We're here with journalist Ellen Shell. Her latest book is called The Job, Work, and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. Ellen, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about sort of this government shutdown and, and jobs because it's making people think about jobs and there's so many stories about the impact of jobs and people living paycheck to paycheck. And this idea of employment is a fresh one. How do you look at this? Like, what? Because it's really like it's depressing yeah. me to look at it. Yeah, you know, the, the or seeing the TSA rights. people. Right. Well, thank goodness I flew here from Boston, and the mm-hmm. wonderful TSA people, mm-hmm. each of whom I thanked personally, yeah, right. were terrific. Right. But but you're absolutely right. And I think what this has really brought to light, this mm-hmm. um, in a very dramatic way, is how many of these government workers are really living from paycheck. To mm-hmm. paycheck, right, and and that is shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it, it, it. There are a couple of things. One of the things you know I, I mentioned before that people seek jobs for different reasons. There's kind of this idea that everybody seeks challenge on the job. That's completely false. Mm-hmm. Some people seek challenge on the job, but many people seek more. People actually seek stability, right. Government workers, on average, seek stability in their job. So this confronting this is a real shock for them. They figure, look, I've given up a lot to get this steady job, and I expect that paycheck every single week. Well, guess what? The paycheck's just been pulled out. For them, it's it's a very dramatic shock. In addition, what this has revealed is, as I said before, how many government workers are not earning a terribly good living. Many Mm -hmm. of these people are contractors. Mm -hmm. And the federal government actually employs more people at low wages than any other entity. Okay? It's kind of— contract. Right. Mostly as contractors. So these people are basically, you know, they've just had the rug pulled out from under them. Suddenly, they have to go to food banks and things like that, whereas many people wouldn't. They'd have a cushion for a month or two. These folks 
are really, you know, on the on the edge. So, you know, g- getting into that idea of contract, this gig economy, the people that yeah. are working for themselves, they're doing Uber or whatever right. whatever they happen to be doing right. here, Airbnb, different things. Right. Is there a movement to change the idea of what a worker is? That's a forward? really good question. In the book I write, so what does it mean to even be employed? Right. Right? And again, what does that even mean? And the idea that people who work one hour a week for Uber are counted as employed mm-hmm. is pretty you know, bizarre to me, right. right? They're not part of the unemployment, you know, part of the reason our unemployment level is so low right now. It's because so many people have an hour of work here, an hour of work there, but it doesn't sustain them, right? No, it doesn't. Um, and again, when the gig economy, you know, got all this, you know, huge amounts of publicity, say, in the early 2000s, late 19, 19 you know, the last century in, in the beginning of the, of the 21st century, we were all cheering it on. We thought, wow, this is great. You can have complete freedom. You can do whatever you want. When, As it turns out, as I said, most people seek stability in work. Right. They want to get up in the morning, know where they're going, what they've got in front of them, know that they're going to get paid for it. This is very important to the vast majority of people. So this gig economy doesn't work for an awful lot of people, and a lot of people are not doing it because they want to do it. They're doing it because they don't see a choice. Right. right? So e- even if they don't, they want stability. Can they have it anymore? I mean, does it? Do we have to change the way? Like I was saying, do we have to just say that's the way it's going to be? Or, or are there things that legislators or others can add on? Again, like, can we make it so? Obviously, healthcare's got to move with people. Different things, benefits, and things like that need to absolutely. move with people. Absolutely. I mean, you've made a very good point. Mm-hmm. I mean, healthcare absolutely should not. I mean, that was a very old idea that came in that health insurance would be provided by your employer. That came around at a time when when healthcare was actually quite cheap. Mm-hmm. And you know, in those days, you know, it wasn't a big deal for employers to provide healthcare. Right. It also wasn't a huge big deal actually for people to pay out of pocket for healthcare because it was cheap. Was much cheaper. Now, of course, most of us can't afford no. to pay for healthcare out of pocket, so it has to come uncoupled from our employment situation. And I think that most, many, many people believe that there's, you know, Medicare for all has become much more popular just in recent months. Mm-hmm. This whole idea that would seem very radical just a few years ago is now being taken up by by a lot of people really in the middle, right? I mean, right. not just radicals, right. um, because we're seeing this. So, yes, we need to uncouple our job from all the things that go along with a job. Our work, not or, our job, right? Well, work, think more broadly in terms of work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you have work. Work has many different components, one of which is your job, maybe or maybe not, mm-hmm. you know. But going forward, you need to have a lot of different outlets, a lot of different ways to find purpose in your mm-hmm. life. And if you sink it all into your job, um, there can be some really sad repercussions, and those are becoming increasingly the case. So right. how does that work getting people mentally? Obviously, education is one, and like how we educate people. I can't stand the education system. <laughs> way, I'm a bad employee, which is why I, I hate, I don't like working for people, which is why I've sort of designed my career in a way that I really don't. Well, like, define bad employee. I don't like bosses. I don't hmm. like them. I don't like talking to them. I'm rude to them. I just can't <laughs> help. I, like, I can't believe I don't get fired every day a week. And, and it's because I know I provide something of value. And so I right. can do that. Because I can right. do it. But I, I put my, what I did is at one point in my career when I was working for big newspapers, I was like, first of all, they're going downhill. You know, I could see True. the economics of it. True. And then I was like, I got to put myself in a position where I don't work for anybody. Or I'm in, a, you know, it was an, int- I mean, I've thought about it very carefully because I realized it was not working out for me particularly. But what was interesting about that when I was doing it was, 
there are ways to work without working for people. Like, but you have to provide, I have to constantly provide something of value to the yes. people I'm working for, yes. right? And so they yes. leave you alone. And I was thinking it's really hard for most people to do that, to like do that, because it's much easier to like not worry about it. Yeah. What does the work look like then? What it, for the vast majority of people, will it, what do we have to do in the education system to get people to that? Like sometimes I'm with my kids, for example, yeah. and I was like, don't do that homework. It won't matter at all. I'm like the bane of teachers. And they're like, and, and my kids are like, really? I'm like, you can do it. I don't care what you get on it. Like, it, because it won't matter. And then yeah. some of the things I'm like, oh, no, do that. Because that's mm. team building. That's this. That's this. Huh. And it's a really interesting thing. But what, where from educational point of view do we have to get to? Is there, there ha- does there have to be radical sure. ways we train people? I think, you know, it's really interesting you should say that I, a lot. I don't know if there are any children listening to this mm-hmm. show. But if there are, they're all going to want you to be their mother. Um, <laughs> homework and, <laughs> you know, so so good for you. Homework you uh, Yeah, homework <laughs> you Great, great. Um, I, clearly, we're very different mothers. Yeah. But um, look, I don't think education needs to be reinvented. Mm-hmm. I think we not you look at education and look how rich people educate their children, right? Yes. And I think it's really interesting. Rich people educate their children, many of them at private schools, where they mm-hmm. still teach things like Greek and Latin, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where they teach the classics. They teach they teach you how to think. And one of the things yes, I found I out that, that, that was really interesting in researching this book was I thought to myself, well, people are talking about the skills gap, the skills gap, the skills. What skills are actually lacking? Mm-hmm. Well, we're told these, you know, computer skills, you know, a lot of economists I talk to. Or business-oriented. There was just a right. story in the Times about this, like all these small humanities colleges clothing. Right, exactly. And, you know, in fact, when you talk to people and find out what's really missing, it's really not, there's not a lack of computer skills. Every kid knows how to use their cell phone. Every Mm -hmm. kid knows how to use these apps. Every kid, you know, almost every kid. Um, That, those kinds of STEM skills, you know what? There, There are plenty of people with STEM skills. What social scientists have found just in recent years is what kids lack are what they call analytic skills. And that is not problem solving per se, but knowing what problems to solve. Right. Kind of the kind of thing that you're talking about yourself. You know, what problems are worth solving? What homework is worth doing? Mm -hmm. Where should I apply my efforts? Okay. Kids who grow up in privilege have a lot more exposure to that than kids who grow up in poverty. Mm -hmm. So poor kids start at a very big disadvantage because they haven't been exposed to choices and decision-making. Oftentimes, they're just told what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas rich kids are given all sorts of choices Mm -hmm. and options and and problems to solve in their everyday life. So so in terms of education is I don't believe in job training, Mm -hmm. okay, because I think it's very limited. You train someone up for a job, and that job is either flooded with people or gone very quickly, you know, right? I believe in a a great liberal arts education for every kid through high school, and Mm -hmm. high school should possibly be a terminal degree, a a decent terminal degree. If it's done properly, kids will know basic mathematics, communication skills, reading skills, all those things that will prepare them, really will prepare them to learn on the job. Because most of us, as you know and I know, learn on the job. You know, I mentioned I'm trained in biology, and here I'm a professor of journalism, right? Right. I never took a journalism class. Right. Right? Well, journalists don't need any training. Well, you know, careful. I teach it a journalism I went to Columbia, please. There you go. Well, I'm sure a lot of your colleagues at Columbia would disagree with you, but— I learned almost nothing there. (laughs) I 
wish, boy. <laughs> I wish I had that money and invested it in Apple. I say it right now. Whoa. I would have been on my island and enjoying it. <laughs> That's very nice. Well, but in any case, most of us train on the job. We do, and the idea, you know, part of what employers are doing now is they're saying, I don't want to train you anymore. I want you to do what they call plug and play. Hire you to do a job right now. You walk in the door. You can do it. You can make me money. And guess what? When you when your skills are a little bit um, out of date, you're out of here, right? right? We'll get the next bunch. Hmm. Don't want to participate in that. There's a reason why, you know, technology industries and other industries want to put out the idea that there's a skills gap meaning a certain kind of skill that they're looking for right now. In the book, I disseminate the idea. I take it apart, and I look at it, and what's if there's a gap, it's in basic, it's in basic skills, reading, writing, arithmetic, calculation, those things we really need to encourage Does in the schools. Does this have a gender or and racial element, too, of how this is working out? Uh, to some degree, you know, the people who dominate the conversation tend to believe that the rest of the world is like them. Mm-hmm. So when I say, you know, most people actually don't necessarily look for challenge in their job, that's kind of apocryphal mm-hmm. because all the people in power, of course, they look for challenge. Right. They're competitive. They were the irritating people in high school. They were the ir- they're the leaders. Right. This whole idea that I always say should- student body vice presidents. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> right. The idea that everybody should be a leader, <laughs> right. you know, leadership. You know, they talked, you know, when my kid was interviewing for preschool, they talked about yeah. leadership qualities in a three-year-old. No, they said that to my kid. <laughs> right. They were saying about, we need your kid to have executive function. I was like, I need to get up right now and leave. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, what That's are what you I talking did. about? Exactly. Craziness. Uh, yeah. but, so I want to finish up. I have to finish okay. up. But in this technologically fast-forward age, there's no answers. You can't give me perfect answers, but what are some of the things that are critical going forward when you think about work? When you're like, if you're a young person, you're like, oh, what the hell do I do? Okay. I can't Instagram my way to fortune. <laughs> some of you will. Some of them can, yeah. Right. Obviously, I'm going to say what you already know. That is to develop a portfolio and not just, you know, first of all, don't wait. Don't assume that your job is going to be your passion. Mm-hmm. Your passion can be anywhere in your life. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, any number of things. Your job can be a way just to make a living while you do other things that are important in your life. That's that's a possibility. Yeah. That should be honored like any other, okay? That's one thing. You know, get a good basic education and, and go take it as far as you feel it's benefiting you. Don't push yourself beyond, you know, don't force yourself to go to college if you're not interested in ideas, right? right? If you're not, if you want to get out there and, and actually be, you know, you're an experiential learner, college may not be the, the place for you to go. You and Peter okay. Thiel. Okay. Right? Okay. That saves a lot <laughs> right. of money. Absolutely. So those are things I would advise. I'd say um, don't Invest everything in your first job. Don't think that if you're not happy in your job, one thing I did is I wrote a little essay for The Atlantic um, that came out in a lot of, about work and its meaning, and a ton of millennials wrote me saying, I'm so miserable in my job. I did everything right. I'm a professional, and my job sucks. And I don't, and so I'm working harder and harder at it because I'm obviously not putting enough into it, mm-hmm. and it's making me more and more miserable. Mm-hmm. No, bad idea. Mm-hmm. Diversify your interests. Maybe you need to keep that job to make a living. But pull back emotionally from it and find other things that will keep you centered and mm-hmm. fulfilled. Because the job is not there to keep you fulfilled. No matter what your employer tells you, your employer cannot make meaning for you. Mm-hmm. You have to make meaning for yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then 
any training that people should do or just not? Just like see? You know, obviously, you know, if you want to be a dental hygienist, you need to be trained as a dental hygienist. Yes, if you want to I be hope all right? you dental hygienists get trained. <laughs> Absolutely. And we want, you know, we want our cardiologists to be mm-hmm. trained. So training, of course, if you have something that you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, I also advocate, you know, but the fastest growing job category in America is nursing. Absolutely. Right? Personal healthcare assistant. I believe those people should be certified and trained and have more education than they do now. Until the robots replace them. Ooh, but robots will not be replacing those people. There's been a lot of work on that. I know that. One of the things at MIT when I was visiting, they were doing some of those robot caregiver people. And I know they couldn't get the eyes right. That's what they kept saying. The eyes freak everyone out. Someday yeah. they'll get the eyes right. You know well, they will. Uh, I don't Not think today. that, you know, I, I have a, a, I a colleague who's an expert in this area. Mm-hmm. And one of the, she's an expert in aging in place, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. robotics. And mm-hmm. she has a technology background. And she feels very strongly that home health care aids will not be automated. Yes. yeah, again. You know, yeah. but, but— Lawyers th- first, then chefs, then home health care. Uh, they're down the list. Down the list. <laughs> they're down the list. But no, but it was yeah. interesting. It was the eyes. And the person who was an engineer— it wasn't meaning to say it. it's like the eyes freak them all out. Like they don't, <laughs> Were you at the robotics lab? Yeah, there? exactly. Yeah. And they can't get it right. They can't get yeah. the robot. People are always scared of robots. But one of the things I'm always with robots, I'm like, why are we trying to make robots more human? Why don't we make humans more robotic? Like add there like, you different go. capabilities. Yeah, it was absolutely. So very last, yeah. the idea yeah. of robots taking over, or that we have to, we will, we will not have jobs. Do you imagine that ever happening? That we will be? I think we will always have work. Okay. And there's always more work to be done, mm-hmm. okay? The notion of jobs, as I say, it's a pretty short-lived one in history. Mm-hmm. It's only a, f- a couple hundred years old, and maybe we've outgrown it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've moved past so it. So UBI for degree. everybody. Right. Well, you know, we're going to have to th- be more imaginative. I think the—I w- wanted to—this book is to some degree disruptive of, mm-hmm. of kind of everyday thinking about this, the uh, kind of cliches that people, you know, thought that mm-hmm. people—you know what? The, the truth of the matter is things are changing. We have to address it. We're not just going to be a lot of people in tech in the technology world. We're saying, well, no, robots are just going to be our pals. We're going to mm-hmm. be our work pals, and we're going to be, you know, we're, we'll have just as much work. That is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay, robots are going to take some of the traditional jobs right, where they, they already have, and they'll do more. Yeah. But there's no limit to work that needs to be done. We have to prioritize the work we want to be done and the work we want to do, and make sure it's compensated fairly. Sure. You know, if yes, if that's the case. Yeah. Are you, so that you're. You seem very positive then. Oh, I am. Oh, my God, I have two kids. Yeah, okay. And uh, I'm very positive for them. Absolutely. Yeah, like, ah, good luck. No, 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 no. It's a transitional time. Uh It's a little scary for all of us on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am very positive and optimistic. So the next era is like Star Trek, right? After this really bad era. (laughs) Is that what's going to happen? You know, I can't can't speak to Star Trek. No money. Because I I don't remember enough about Star Trek. No money. Explore. Well, you know, I I don't know about, no, I don't think there's not going to be money. Um, I, I think the money will persist, mm-hmm. but I think that um, the next generation coming up is, is coming into a new reality mm-hmm. and they're not going to say, I want to be a coal miner. Mm-hmm. You know, th- these folks, they're th- these young people are not saying that. They're not looking back and being nostalgic. They're looking forward. This is the world they were born into and they're going to be equipped to deal with it. All right, Ellen, this is really fascinating. It was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher, also on this podcast, obviously, which is never going to be outsourced. Ellen, where can you find you online? Ellenshell.com. 
ellenshell.com and to yes. all your information. Are you That's on Twitter right. at all? Are you on the yes, Twitter? I do that once in a while. Yeah, do you? Once yes, <laughs> I do. You do the Twitter? I do the Twitter. Yeah, I, was, I'm, I keep joking that it's just pretty much Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Trump right now online. <laughs> yeah, it. they're hard to beat. That's all. That's <laughs> there, Just watch them and that'll be good. Now right. that you're done with this, go check out one of our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. 